Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. All right, welcome back to another episode of Behind the Knife. Today, we are going to discuss uh, the follow-up of the first trial, the second trial, conveniently enough. Uh, on the line, we have uh, Dr. Harone, who she's a pediatric surgeon at Lurie's Children's Hospital in Chicago. She's also assistant professor of surgery at Northwestern University Feinberg uh, School of Medicine. And most importantly, most applicable to our podcast, she is the current uh, co-PI on the surgical education culture optimization through targeted interventions based on national compre- uh, comparative data uh, trial, also known as a much easier to say second trial uh, with Dr. Carl Billamoria. Uh, who we previously had on the podcast to discuss the results from the first trial. Uh, Dr. Hugh, uh, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, just quickly, uh, can you just discuss you know, kind of your, uh, where you're practicing, what you specialize in, um, and just kind of give the listeners a little bit of a, a background on who you are? Sure. Uh, I am a pediatric surgeon at Lurie Children's in Chicago, which is the pediatric hospital with Northwestern. Um, and I also am a faculty member at the Surgical Outcomes and Quality Improvement Center at Northwestern. That's under the Department of Surgery. Um, and that's where I work with Carl Billamoria as well as other uh, health services research people. Um, and we have a whole group doing education research. So the first trial sort of falls under that, and so does the now the second trial. Okay. And then uh, I guess from being in the, the outcomes research and everything, that's how you got involved with the first and now second trial? Uh, yeah, exactly. I have always been interested in education. Actually, I started out by being interested in quality, and you can't really uh, study quality without studying education, because obviously to have better outcomes, you need better trained people. Um, so that's how I got into sort of education research. But um, but yeah, the second trial is sort of an uh, interesting merger of different things that I have over time sort of been interested in. So uh, the idea of surgical culture, education, and um, outcomes all in one. Okay, thank you. Um, well, to start off, you know, just to give the the listeners a little background uh, of, of why we're having this podcast today, um, if you don't mind, would you kind of go through the first trial with us, just giving us the main findings? Uh, there's been a lot of talk about this. There's a lot of data on this. I remember when a study came out, it was probably one of the most talked about studies I've ever seen. So um, we did previously discuss this on the podcast um, with Dr. Billy Moria. Uh, that was on uh, episode 47 from February 2016. I think we caught him at the uh, uh, Ma- American Surgical Congress or somewhere around there. We caught him there. But so, uh, but if you want to give us a quick background on the uh, first trial, and uh, we'll have some questions afterwards, that'd be great. Sure. The um, so the first trial uh, was a collaboration between SoQuick, the American Colleges of Surgeons. The American College of Surgeons, the um, American Board of Surgery, and the ACGME, and it was trying to address this question of whether all these duty hour restrictions were really impacting um, patient care. So, um, so um, basically, programs were randomized, cluster randomized, so randomized at the level of the program to either standard duty hour restrictions or some flexibility, and it was up to them. Um, which sort of things they got to flex. And then the outcomes were measured in two different ways. One, um, patient outcomes. 
sort of to reassure the public about the safety of um, having residents be able to work extended hours if needed. Um, and so that looked at NISQIP outcomes. So for the first trial, um, in order to participate, the programs had to already or be willing to sign on to NISQIP participation. Um, so it was a much more limited um, cohort than the second trial. Then the second thing that we looked at was um, resident outcomes. So as we changed duty hours, did residents get more burned out or did their well-being change? Um, and that was measured with the survey that you all take at the end of the app site. Um, the response rate has been really high, so we've had this opportunity to describe things um, with like a complete cohort that, you know, it's an opportunity that other researchers don't have. So, for example, in a typical study of like burnout, um, it, it'd be a survey. And if you put it, for example, like on the on a website or uh, tweeted it out, you wouldn't have any idea of who was responding and who wasn't. So um, that response rate could potentially bias you, the non-response bias meaning meaning that um, uh, the people who are likely to respond are probably more burned out and so perhaps you overestimate the rate. So if we have a survey in which 99% of residents are in the country are responding, then we have a much better idea that this is actually the rate in the US. So anyway, the first trial um, looked at both patient outcomes and then resident outcomes and it found that there was really no difference in terms of either of those outcomes between trial arms. However, uh, what interests us interests us currently is just that the rate of poor well-being is not that low in surgery. So even though it's not different between arms, um, there is still a pretty high rate of um, of poor well-being poor, um, and burnout. With the first trial, there was, uh, you know, some questions about the layout of the trial and, and some of the methods. And uh, we wanted to get into some of these critiques in a way to um, shed light on how these may be addressed or considered in the second trial. Um, sure. And so the, the first part of it is that um, some of the resident level data was collected through that survey after Absite and, um, and then through kind of the surveys of resident reported things. And um, the criticism of that uh, is twofold. So number one, when talking about duty hours, which is, I think, a little less relevant to the second trial, was that um, I, I personally have not met a single resident who has not lied at one point or the other about their duty hours. And so there may be some component of that um, restricted duty hour cohort um, still being technically unrestricted because uh, they're because of dishonesty in reporting the working hours um, when comparing to the unrestricted group. Um, and then similarly with the survey after abs site, many residents are tired, they want to leave, they're not paying much attention to the survey. Or I've even heard from um, some residents that they also aren't honest on it because of fear of repercussions. So I, I specifically heard from senior residents who said, if we are honest in reporting some issues and then our program gets dinged and there's some problem, we're about to graduate. We don't want that to hinder us moving forward and completing this program. So um, I guess I'll, I'll leave it open to you for your response to, to that first part. Yeah, there's a... I think there's a couple sort of issues wrapped up in that. Um, and just remind me if I don't make it to all of them. But for one thing, the um, the absent survey is different from the ACGME survey that everybody takes. Um, 
I forgot to mention earlier, I'm also the associate program director for the Northwest Internal Surgery Program. So the ACGME gives out that survey that you guys are all like required to respond to and also that you um, um, basically the program gets dinged if you don't respond a certain way. Um, the ABSITE survey does not go to the ACGME. Um, the EBS gives us the data. It's totally de-identified, and there are no repercussions because um, that, that doesn't get fed back to anybody that does accreditation. And in fact, when we started talking about the second trial and talking to the ACGME about it, um, we had raised the fact that people might be concerned that our collaboration with them might make um, people worry that there's like a big brother component. Um, and they said to reassure everybody, like we never want to use that data for anything regarding accreditation. We think wellness is an important issue that we want to work on. So um, so it wouldn't get your programs in trouble. I think the second part, the or maybe it was the first part you brought up about how honest people are. So um, so the hours that you report through new innovations or whatever your program is to track, I, I, be, I mean, I wasn't a resident so long ago, I believe that people are probably lying. Um, we ask people if they are violating on the outside survey, and there is actually a fair number of people who say they are. So I think whether or not they report on like new innovations or whatever the reporting structure is, they're still telling us something honest on the survey. That said, if there are people still lying on the survey, then we should be underestimating those problems, right? And we're still seeing a pretty significant number of people reporting violations, reporting burnout, that that means if it's a conservative estimate, we are even more concerned, right? Like there's even more reason to study these issues if um, if what we're seeing is actually too low. Um, what else? The definitely the post-ab site like anxiety piece has been brought up before. Our psychometricians have actually brought up the opposite, um, which is post-exam elation. So I'm not sure um, which direction the bias is in exactly. Um, however, the one advantage to doing it this way is that everybody is taking the exam under the same conditions. Whereas if we gave the exam like some random day in September, that, that day might mean different things to different programs, right? So, um, so, so there is, you know, there's advantages and disadvantages to doing with the app site. I think um, one really hard advantage to match would be just that response rate of over 99%. Um, there's very few other settings in which everybody in the country has to sit down all at the same time to do the same thing. So, um, so it may be that we end up moving to another mechanism for measuring these things, but for now, this seems to be a, a good one. Did I hit all the points that you mentioned? <laughs> that hit every point, and thank you for answering that because I think um, as we as you start t telling us more about the second trial, I think that's important for everyone to keep in mind that uh, the responses that you just gave. So thank you for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really do want people to answer honestly on the outside survey. Um, I know there is. I know we've discussed this about how there is essentially coaching for the ACGME survey, and um, we purposely ask very different questions and. Um, I don't know. Hopefully people don't complete those two. The one question I had, uh, and this is kind of moving forward just a little bit, uh, is like, what is the current status of these outcomes of this uh, of the study? Have we seen any new guidelines from ACGME regarding uh, the flexible duty hours? Is this something that programs are allowed to do? Uh, in 2017, they changed the common core requirements for all specialties uh, to allow some to introduce some flexibility based on the findings, but they haven't there haven't been any policy changes since then, um, is a direct result of our work. They, I know there have been new requirements to programs to start addressing wellness that hasn't been 
that wasn't because of us and that also hasn't been um, super well delineated. Like, what does it mean to, to do something for wellness and what do they have to do? And, you know, that's what we've been hearing from program directors. So that's sort of where the second trial came from. You know, like everybody knows burnout is a problem. Everyone knows poor well-being is a problem. But um, is it our problem? Like, if you're in a particular program, is it that program's problem? How does that program compare to other programs? And if it is worse, what do they do about that? There's just not a lot of data that exists. So we're hoping to fill that gap. Could you comment on um, the bias that would come from like uh, program directors and program leadership um, who do believe that the old model was a better model of like training surgical residents? And how could you comment on that criticism for a first trial and um, how you're kind of incorporating that for the second trial? Uh, the bias you're referring to, meaning like the out, like referring to go back to a system in which there's no hour restrictions. Uh, I don't think we're ever moving towards that. Um, and I ha- actually not met that many program directors who have at least openly advocated for that. Um, we're sort of moving away from duty hours. And um, there's still a couple questions on the app site that address duty hours, just whether or not people are using flexibility and um, how they um, how they do that. So like what kind of support systems do programs have in place for um, like letting their residents get to the OR and um, uh, doing actual clinical work as opposed to like charting and discharge summaries and things. Um, but I think we're moving away from the actual regulations. I don't know. I mean, I, again, like the ACGM is a totally separate body. They support this work, but I don't actually have any <laughs> inner insider gossip about what they're going to do next. The, another question that we have for you is that, you know, while the primary outcome of the first trial was uh, was patient outcomes. Um, there were secondary outcomes of resident wellness and burnout from the study. Um, can you talk about these and how this led into eventually shaping the second trial? Sure. Um, so the so the what I'm sorry. You mean what was the outcome on the first trial that has led to the second trial? Right. So um, so this actually was before I even started at Northwestern, but. Um, but as part of the resident outcomes that they were measuring was the Maslach burnout inventory. Um, it's like the standard instrument that everybody uses to measure burnout. But um, there are, it's like, it's um, tailored to healthcare professionals specifically. There's three questions about each domain. There's three domains. So there's depersonalization, emotional exhaustion, and um, personal um, accomplishment. The surgical residents in general look pretty similar in personal accomplishment. That's probably not surprising. Um, but there's a pretty wide range in terms of the other two. Um, and so in different places, the different research groups um, measure the MBI in different ways. So I think that the authors of the MBI actually um, advocate for like a continuous scale. So you like you on each of those three items for each domain, you rate how frequently you have that symptom. And so you're supposed to add, you know, each each Likert item, each time point is supposed to get a point, and then you add them together. Um, some places have a cutoff, so they can therefore say burned out or not. Some people say you have to have one of those symptoms on um, both emotional exhaustion and depersonalization. Some people say that it's an OR operator. It's kind of complicated. But basically, <laughs> our primary outcome will be burnout using that instrument. Um, and we're currently thinking about it like a continuous scale. So um, hopefully at the end of the second trial, the uh, intervention arm will see a uh, drop between um, now and after all these sort of interventions are put in place. 
if we see a, d- a drop in the control arm, I guess I wouldn't be surprised also because most people are doing something and that knowledge sort of diffuses. But um, yeah, hopefully we're hoping to move that needle. So just backing up a little bit, um, can you give us an overview of what exactly the primary outcome of the second trial is? Um, what is the study? And just kind of that basic overview similar to what you did for the first trial. Sure. So uh, the second trial will look at learning environments and um, things that impact residents' well-being. The primary outcome is going to be burnout. Um, and then there will be some secondary outcomes around the learning environment and other sort of metrics of well-being. So um, so the way that it'll work is that programs, again, will be re- randomized at the level of the program to controller intervention. Everybody is going to, um, every program is going to get some data, some personalized data about their residents' well-being. So they'll get, each program will get um, their residents' burnout, thoughts of attrition, and thoughts of suicide. And those will be given in a way that is anonymized. So it won't be an exact rate because we don't want programs to back calculate, like I have four residents, I have a 75% burnout rate, therefore I guess it's these three people. It'll probably, it'll be in some way benchmarked against the rest of the country. So for example, um, you're in the first or best quartile for burnout. You have one of the lowest burnout rates in the country, but you'll have an idea of, um, which both makes it anonymous for the residents and also makes it so you can compare yourself. Because let's say you were giving out the MBI to your own program, you don't really know what those scores mean, right? Because it's hard to um, put into context, like, because all the research groups all use different ways of measuring the scale, it's hard to even pull from the literature where you fall. And then second, you know, is that really applicable? Like, is your population the same? Um, Are surgery residents the same as other kinds of residents or other kinds of doctors? Um, So this will give you, like, benchmarking across the population that is directly relevant. so the way that the, so the other thing that, um, so then the interventional group will additionally get some like more experimental variables. So the MBI is super well established. There are some variables that we've been looking at around um, the different drivers of well-being. Um, there's a couple different models for this. The National Academy of Medicine has one and um, Shanafelt has one. Uh, Tate Shanafelt has developed one about called Areas of Work Life. So it looks at like the different things about an environment that affect people's well-being. So um, for example, there's a domain about control. So you can imagine having more control of your call schedule is better for your work-life balance than having zero control. Uh, there's um, there's something about social support or community. So a, a program with a lot of camaraderie, you imagine uh, people would be less burned out than that. So we started to add questions to get at these things. We don't really know how those questions work yet because they don't come from an existing instrument. Uh, but some of those data points, um, if we find them to be meaningful, replicable, et cetera, we'll start to feed those back to the intervention programs too. And so the idea is we can give them targeted feedback about where their weaknesses are in their learning environment. Like maybe you guys do tons of social stuff, but you're not super good at autonomy. Um, and so based on those identified areas of weakness, they should be able to um, pick out what they need to work on. We are currently putting together a um, toolkit of ready-to-go like interventions that they can then use to work on their identified problems. So, for example, um, there's a new requirement from the ECGME that we were supposed to give residents time off to do doctor's appointments and 
uh, routine medical care kind of stuff. Um, and what does that look like at different places? So for example, Emory has a extra half day off per month on top of the one and seven days off that everybody gets. Or um, I think Vanderbilt, it was, has a concierge service of somebody who books those things. And so how can we take the best things from each program and sort of put together a best practices list for programs? Like how would you put in a one in, an extra day off for people? And how do you maintain all the coverage? And how do you um, how do you make sure that everyone is actually doing it? And so can we share those best practices and make it easier? Like as people have figured out how, like the difficulties around implementing, how can we use it for someone else? So that's what the toolkit will be. Uh, and to clarify, so, so <laughs> yeah, no, that, that was a, that was a very great overview. Thank you so much. And I think we test, uh, we kind of touched on the kind of the three aims of the study uh, quite well there. Um, but just to kind of go back, you know, you have these three aims of the study. So um, I just kind of, you know, give the listeners an like, idea exactly what you guys want to achieve here. Um, so aim one is, you know, by definition to perform a national mixed methods evaluation of program culture and resident wellness and surgery. From that specific aim, my understanding is that you want to um, take the things that residency programs are doing well or maybe not doing so great. And that's how you will develop your toolkit. Is that correct? It is. Yeah. And what's mixed method about it is the qualitative piece. Um, it's both quantitative and qualitative. So we got, so we you know, like I was saying, we started asking these questions about learning environments on the survey and we're trying to figure out whether those actually show us differences in the learning environments. Um, so currently what we're doing, um, we're like on name one already, is that we're um, visiting different programs, like mostly high performers um, to see what they do around wellness or what they do not even intentionally around wellness that makes their residents well. And then how can we sort of wrangle those into a toolkit of digestible information for other people? So that's aim one. <laughs> okay. And you say you've uh, already, you've already started that portion of it. So, and then and define high performers are people who have had great survey results. Is that what you're defining as high performers then? So there's three different ways programs get identified for program tours. The first is some programs are just really famous for wellness, right? Like University of Arizona is really well known for having this whole curriculum called energy leadership. It's just what they do. And so we um, started off with snowball sampling. So we went to University of Arizona. We asked them about other programs that they know about. You know, Stanford also is a really well-known program. So we are going there soon and we're, you know, gradually making it to sort of all those places that have been thought leaders in this field. Um, the other ways that people are getting um, identified is through survey results. So like I said, there's all these different domains that we're identifying around drivers of well-being in the learning environment. Um, so we'll look at different phenotypes. So maybe um, maybe there's some programs that are really good at social stuff and less good at uh, didactic stuff. Maybe there's some people who are really good at um, mentoring and less good at, you know, just what many different items that we're asking about. So we're in the middle of a bunch of mixed methods analyses of this data, um, like latent class analysis or principal component analysis. They're like sort of mixed methods ways of identifying different types of programs. And then we'll pick like representative people or programs from each of those groups and then go see what they're doing. Does that make sense? <laughs> 
So you just mentioned uh, the University of Arizona and Stanford, which are the two more prominent programs that have implemented uh, wellness initiatives. And uh, one yep. of the things that struck me in, in reading the publications they have based on their programs is, uh, unfortunately, they, they didn't have a lot of statistical significance in their outcomes. Um, there were trends, positive trends based on the wellness um, initiatives, but uh, achieving statistical significance, even using these different scales like the MBI, um, weren't achieved. And so that, I guess, is my one concern in any of these wellness studies is how how difficult do you think it's going to be even with this trial to give some sort of quantitative data points for something that is so qualitative? So I think that a lot of the issues that people have had with these studies is that they're all single programs. So they're all underpowered. Um, because the most residents you ever have in a program is what, like 70 or so? And it's hard to um, show, it's hard to show, even if you have a pretty big effect size, you can not show significance with a smaller cohort. So um, hopefully with the second trial, we have every resident in the country. So hopefully we will um, help them demonstrate that. I think that they're good programs. I think um, in a larger, cohort, we may well to see a difference that is that reaches statistical significance. Correct. And not just statistical significance, it probably ref is re going to be reflective of like all over the country uh, trends. I would like to now yeah. kind of, you touched on the aim too, but just to, um, just for our listeners, I'm going to read it out. Your aim too is to conduct a prospective pragmatic cluster randomized trial, which is the second trial, attempting to improve residency program culture and resident wellness. Is there anything else you would like to kind of add or describe that you have not mentioned so far? Yeah, sure. So the we talked about how the primary outcome is burning out. The secondary outcomes will be sort of these other features of the learning environment that we're figuring out how to measure. Um, there will be also some uh, metrics for uh, to make sure there's no like adverse consequences or unintended consequences. So, for example, if we make wellness better, does it make does it change your education? Because obviously we don't want people to be happier but less well trained. So. Um, we already get data around absent scores and EBS uh, certification rates, so we'll continue to look at that. Um, we'll also be looking at the ACGB case logs to see whether or not like case volumes or categories change. Um, we are currently working with the um, developer, developers of the Simple and the ZwishMe apps, and so we're hoping to be able to assess sort of on a case-by-case -case basis whether or not autonomy changes in the OR. Um, and then the second group of outcomes is patient outcomes again. So I was saying that the first trial had in this quip um, requirement, which limited the number, the number of programs that could participate. So there were like 120 or so programs in the first trial. There are 320 ACGME accredited programs that can participate and they'll all be eligible for this trial. Um, the subset that has the um, NISQIP program um, we'll look at their patient outcomes just to make sure there is no difference as um, we start to focus on wellness. So resident outcomes, patient outcomes, education outcomes. <laughs> All right. And then moving on to aim three, which is to refine the wellness toolkit by identifying the most successful context-specific interventions and expand access to both arms. 
Um, that's a lot of words. Would you like to break us down um, what exactly exactly wellness toolkit is and what do you mean by the context-specific interventions? The wellness toolkit is basically what we're building now by visiting all these programs and figuring out what it is they do. We're also sort of making phone calls to each place to figure out um, for the ones that we're not visiting to figure out what we may be missing. So we're collating like all this information into a toolkit. And so the toolkit will be like topically organized. So let's say you're a program in the intervention arm and you figure out that um, the problem with your learning environment is um, autonomy. So then you go to the section in the toolkit on autonomy, it'd be like a web-based thing. So you click on autonomy and it gives you a list of different things that different programs are doing. And then they'll sort of be um, marked by like, what do they cost? What kind of uh, time investment? Who do you need to be involved? You know, like different, sort of like when you go to Yelp and it gives you like the dollar sign or the location or whatever. It'll be different features that you can select on. Then um, each one will have like, let's say a one pager of like highlights. So it'll all be standardized. So each intervention will have like a, how do you do it? Um, what's, you know, what are the practical things that you need to think about when you're um, implementing this? And then who are people that your program directors can talk to to coach them through the process? Does that make sense? Yeah, so I have two questions about this. So the first one is first collecting the data, right, to get the targeted um, what areas programs can improve. And then the wellness toolkit will come out in a couple of years uh, for them to address it. And then what is the plan for studying it? The wellness toolkit should come out in the next six months or so. We're building it oh. now based on these program tours. So basically in the fall, so people will enroll like in a month or so, in the next month, and then we'll randomize in early fall, and then we're thinking their first data report based on 2019 outside data will come out also in the fall, and then probably like fall into winter is when the toolkit will get released and people start working on things. Therefore, with the next outside survey, which will be in January, obviously, um, it's probably still more baseline data. I'm, I'd be surprised if anything has anything, if anybody has anything like up and rolling before January, if they've just had the toolkit for a couple of months, but it's possible. And then we'll continue measuring those outcomes for the next four years. As the um, coordinating center, so Click will serve as um, like a central place to house the toolkit and to help programs with implementation. That's um, something we already do in the state of Illinois um, for quality improvement initiatives. So like analogously, um, there a recent project throughout the state of Illinois was producing or improving DTE prophylaxis. So if you look at different hospitals, they each have different issues with that. So for example, at one hospital, it could all be patient refusal. At another hospital, it could just be like lack of ordering. And so there's different solutions based on what your issue is. So for the hospital that has problems because all the patients refuse, um, we our toolkit has things like... Um, patient education materials, uh, training for nurses, or like, what do you say when a patient uh, refuses? How do you talk them into it? For the hospital that has like the order entry problem, there's like an Epic plugin, there's order entry sets that they can use, like things that they can take off the shelf and help them um, improve their own rates. So um, so in that setting, so quick does the coordination between hospitals, they feed back the data, or we, we feed back the data, and then we help them with those pieces of the toolkit that they decide that they're gonna work on. So we would do something analogous for the second trial, right? So we provide the data from the app site um, that's benchmarked across the country. We put together this toolkit, um, and then we'll help people actually implement the things that are in the toolkit. Okay, and then and we'll so measure that for the next 
four to five years. At the end of it, sorry, you were getting at AIM-3, um, we'll sort of know, looked, looking at time trends for the country, knowing what people are working on, uh, what worked and what didn't. And so, like, are there any inventions that basically no one could get to work? Then we'll throw that away. Are there um, things that were super effective because certain places did that? Then we'll sort of refine that piece of the intervention um, and make everything more um, useful, basically. And then we'll release that toolkit access to everybody. I had seen a previous iteration of this one-page document on the second trial where in the toolkit there was this component of education and service balance and, you know, implementing P's and P's and talking more about the protected educational time and things like that. Um, is uh -huh. this, has this been removed to focus in on more of these um, other ways to affect wellness or is that still going to be a component of the toolkit? Uh, that'll still be a component of the toolkit. So basically, that's one of the so that service versus um, service versus education balance is like an aggregate of a bunch of questions that we've been asking. Um, and again, these are questions that we developed, but they're not existing. So we don't know how they work and how they're gonna. We don't know if they're measuring what we think they're measuring. We don't know if it'll really differentiate between programs. So it's sort of an experimental variable. That's why we took it out of the example. Um, but I but it's like an easy thing for people to understand, which is why it wasn't there to begin with. So, so you can imagine that more service than education is a dissatisfier. And so how would a program work on that? Um, recently, we started pr surveying program directors about what they're already doing, and we'll continue to do that every year. And one of the things, one of the responses someone wrote in is like, oh, we have all these um, advanced practice providers, but they don't actually do anything. <laughs> so, um, so it's really disheartening for our residents to get out of the hour and find out they have to do all the discharge summaries. So, but I feel like there are programs that have addressed that, and perhaps we can help them with that. Um, on the other other end of the spectrum, maybe there's programs that have nothing, and how can we sort of um, how can we put them in touch with people who've already done it to figure out like how do they identify funds for it, how do they justify it at like an institutional or administrative level, um, you know? So I think. So we started out looking at wellness. I think a lot of the dissatisfiers are not traditionally considered strictly wellness. And so there may be things in the toolkit like service versus education, like having more um, advanced practice support that people don't typically think of as being like about feelings. <laughs> Has the wellness toolkit um, considered the costs? Um, is this not just the efforts on the program and the and the residents and the uh, our ancillary staff. But what about the actual costs of it? Have you addressed that, or how how are you going to convince programs to uh, adopt this wellness toolkit if there are like certain expenses and costs involved, especially with sure, like? Sorry, with if I didn't explain this before, it's meant to be a pragmatic trial. So similar to the first trial, where nobody had to. Nobody was compelled to do anything. We're not going to make anybody do anything. So we're going to give them data and then basically access to this toolkit that lets them um, decide what they, helps them, uh, sorry, access to this toolkit that helps them on the things that they want to work on. But we are not going to make anyone do anything. And similarly, in the control arm, we're not going to prevent anyone from doing anything. So if a program wants to do something on their own, they can do something on their own. Um, and we'll just sort of watch along the side and figure out you know, which of those things worked. I think that the um, things that we're finding at different programs um, range widely in cost. So some programs we go to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on like social events and things. Some programs have like 
a $30,000 budget for wellness and they do a ton. So um, there will be things in the toolkit that are free. There is going to be things that are probably expensive. And that'll be one of the categories that we will give people so that they can sort of differentiate between what they can and cannot do. Um, sounds good. Uh, we would now like to move on to just kind of asking you some very quick uh, questions um, that were kind of mentioned in the PDF that you sent us. But just for our listeners, we want to kind of go over those things again. So. Um, my first question to you, uh, you just mentioned uh, pragmatic randomized trial. What was your um, what was your rationale behind the randomization? Isn't it unethical to be withholding resources from the control group residents? We actually convened an ethics bio, uh, bioethics panel to come and talk about these issues. Uh, they're totally independent from us, and they are actually writing a white paper on if you wanted to do this, how would you do it? And they actually thought that it was more ethical to completely withhold everything from the control arm to not give them data even um, because we don't know what giving that data will do. Um, but that said, um, we are giving all programs some data in response to um, program directors who really didn't want to not know if their residents reporting high rates of burnout and suicide. And I think, you know, that's, that's fair. Um, that said, the... Um, as you pointed out earlier, we don't know what works, right? There's no, there's no super robust data. So it's, it would be quite an ask to have everybody implement everything, right? They spend a lot of money on potentially on some of these programs. They definitely spend a lot of effort and we don't know if they work or not. So, um, so I think there's equipoise. So um, in doing the trial, we're trying to generate that data to, um, prove that everyone should or should not do these things. And another question that I think people might think about with uh, considering enrollment is confidentiality of both the residents and the programs. Can you speak on how you guys are maintaining that anonymity? Definitely. So the absent data has always been anonymous. The ABS takes off all the resident identifiers before they send it to us. There's no way for us to even try to identify those people. Um, we do have the programs, obviously, if we're going to give programs back data. Um, but when we analyze it, it's so quick, it all is de-identified, even at the program level, and there's only like a limited number of people who have access to those uh, linkages. The data will go back to the programs, like I said before, um, without actual rates, because we don't want them to be able to back calculate proportions and figure out who said what. It'll be all benchmarked data. So you are in the first quartile or the best quartile for burnout rates. So you know that you're doing well, but you don't actually know, like, what is that rate necessarily. Um, we will suppress certain data points if there's no way to benchmark it in a way that is um, totally anonymous. For example, if we, um, one of the items is about racial discrimination, but let's say you only have one minority program, one minority resident in your program, then it's very obviously obvious who did the reporting. So for that program, that number would get suppressed. Um, when we go on the program tours and we're doing like interviews and focus groups of residents, all of that information is confidential. I think that's, those are all the, I think those are all the protections for the residents from the resident standpoint. From the program standpoint, we touched on this earlier, but the ACGME does not have access to any of this data. It can't be used against programs. Um, and really only programs, programs will only have access to their own data. So there is benchmarking, but they don't know who else is in their category. They don't know who else is above or below them. 
Um, and that's intentional. Um, one thing we do in the quality world when we, um, for example, I was saying that we were doing this in the state of Illinois, is that we tell or we write into the contracts that the hospital sign, and similarly, we'll write into the contracts that the program sign that they cannot advertise data. So you can't say like, we're the, the least burned out program in the country because then everyone will sort of deduce who is not. Um, so the, the data is for internal use only. Um, so it'll go to like the program director or the chair or the DIO. Um, and then each program will decide if they want to release to their residents, but they cannot release beyond that group of people. All right. Kind of keeping up with your uh, the logistics of this trial, when does when will the second trial start and end? Could you give us like a timeline which you have in mind? Yeah, we should be enrolling, like I said, in the next month or so. Um, randomization will happen over the summer to fall, and then. Um, First report and toolkit will happen like fall, fall, winter. So um, we are funded for four years currently, and we're actively applying for grants to be able to extend further, but um, minimum four years. We measure the outcome in every year, and there'll be a midpoint analysis to make sure there's no major um, red flags. So things that would make us end early is if um, the intervention was like super awesome and <laughs> it was unethical to keep going without extending access to the other arm. Um, or uh, that something terrible was happening and we had to stop. I don't really anticipate either, to be honest. <laughs> I think culture is um, going to be long-ranging to change. Culture change is going to be long-ranging, rather. Well, thank you very much for joining us to talk about the second trial. Um, we look forward to seeing the results and having you back on to talk about the results in the future. But for right now, um, so enrollment, can you, is there like a certain date that uh, everyone should look out for um, enrolling and what are the kind of logistical details about enrollment and what any of our listeners who are either residents or the program directors um, should know about getting involved? Yeah. So, um, so for sure, talk to your program directors about enrolling. We will be sending out packets to them in the next couple of weeks to month, next month or so. Um, but definitely, we would love the residents on the ground to be asking their program directors about this. If you want more information about the trial, it's available at www.thesecondtrial.org. Um, you um, can feel free to email us. It's second at northwestern.edu. Um, and then I think I think that's it. Um, hopefully, you know, the part of the enrollment packet that's going out to the program directors is a little slideshow um, explaining that they're enrolling and what that means. So um, hopefully that provides you with that extra information as well. Great. We'll put those uh, links and email address in the show notes. And thank you again for joining us today. Thank you so much for having us. Until next time, dominate the day.